What's up everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy aka DJ Shrimp and you're listening to Millionaire 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 Interviews. Interviews. Before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to our first Patreon contributors. Karina Gardano in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thank you for being our first Patreon. If you're looking to get a six-pack and you're in that area, then Karina's your go-to. You can find out more about her business in the episode notes below. Our second Patreon member is Savili Kolin from Russia. Thank you for supporting the podcast, brother. Our third Patreon contributor is Carl Milton from the UK. Thanks for being a gold sponsor. And be sure to send me more info on your business so I can drop in the show notes for everybody else to see. And our last Patreon supporter at the time of this recording is David Marshall from Chat Marshall. If you're looking for a live chat agent for your website that'll help increase your online sales, then go check out the episode notes for more info on his business. And again, thank you all for being our first supporters. We really do appreciate it. The only way my team and I can keep producing these episodes is through your support. If this podcast is helping you and your business or your future business, then please take the time to become a supporter. We're competing against other larger podcasts that have public funding. So they're able to stay on the air through taxpayers and donations. Unfortunately, we don't have access to these funds. So we're asking that you become a Patreon member to help support our podcast. It only takes a minute to sign up and you can pay through PayPal. Plus, we give you cool perks for joining each tier. And those are things that you don't get when you just give regular donations to other types of podcasts. So again, if you're getting any value from this podcast, then please take the time to financially support us. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon or scroll down to the bottom of this episode description and you can see how you can become a Patreon member today. Help me help you. Help me help you. You are hanging on by a very thin thread. <laughs> That's my man. Hey, I'm happy to entertain you. Help me! Help me! Just think about that for a second. Because if you're a small business and you're listening to this, you need to make sure that you've got these four pillars working and working in harmony. You'll grow your business, guaranteed. Money, 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 money. Did a second round in 05. By 2006, he'd asked me to put a third round in, and I was like, brother, what are you doing with the money that I'm giving you? This is, if anybody's listening, get on your keyboard or, you know, God forbid, if you still have write stuff with a pen and paper, write this down. Because what I always tell folks is that when you wake up in the morning, if you're not super jazzed to do what you're doing, man, find something else because life is too dang short. So ready when you are. Okay. John Oshel, CEO of SwiftPage, and I am based here in Denver, Colorado, and I am 56 years old. And what company did you say again you're working with? SwiftPage. So SwiftPage is a company that provides software, CRM, and marketing automation software for small businesses. SwiftPage was founded in 2001. We acquired the ACT brand in 2013. We're in three different locations around the world. We're headquartered here in Denver, have a large operation in Arizona, a large operation over in the UK. 
have about 85,000 customers, about 300,000 users on a worldwide basis. And how many people work with you as far as clients and within your company as well? From a customer perspective, we have 85,000 customers, and that equates to 300,000 users, a lot of seats per user. And we have about just a little over 200 what we call Swifties. You know, SwiftPage is the name of our company. All of our employees are called Swifties. We have about 200 Swifties, and we also have another 250 to 300 what we call ACT-certified consultants who are value-added resellers around the world. You're basically a worldwide company, or what percentage would you say U.S. versus outside U.S.? 70% is North America. So I would say that when I say North America, that's U.S. and Canada. And then 30% is outside of North America. And can you just explain a little bit more about SwiftPage? How do people find you? And just maybe make it as simple as you can as far as why people contact you and what you help them with. So if you're a small business and you're ready to grow your business and you're really trying to get a more intimate relationship with your customers to use that to grow your business, really the easiest way to get in contact with us is go to act.com, A-C-T.com, and that's our product line. And then if you're interested in the company itself, SwiftPage, you can go to SwiftPage.com. That'll tell you all about us as well. And I'd love to give you the history of SwiftPage because it is a fun and crazy wild story. Before we jump into it real quick, can you make it even like simpler? I mean, I've heard ACT, which is CRM. You said something about being a CRM earlier. I'm just trying to figure out how if a random person was Googling or whatever, what they come across and why they choose you and what specifically more that you do. CRM is customer relationship management. And it's really been focused, quite frankly, on the mid and enterprise size companies. Listen, if you're a small business and you say, hey, I need to try figuring out, you're probably going to do searches on, you know, how do I grow my business? How do I get more customers? How do I retain my customers, et cetera? You're going to get inundated with all different kinds of stuff. You're going to see players like Act. You're going to see players like Infusionsoft and Zoho and Salesforce and all those types of players. And I think what you really need to take a look at and why it's important to really focus on is take a look at the tool set that's really geared towards small businesses. ACT has been around for 30 years, right? ACT was developed back in 1987. It was the first CRM. It's got 30 years of knowledge built into it on how to help small businesses. And, you know, a lot of these other softwares are really designed for enterprise, very, very large companies. And they say, well, we can also help you, the small business. Unfortunately, it's there's so much in it and it's so geared towards the large companies that small companies feel it's really hard for them to use. There's just so much into it. it they just can't get started. Why they would choose ACT is... It's a trusted brand, been around a long time. It's purpose-built for the small business. It is a one platform now that has both CRM and marketing automation. And that's a big piece too, because in the industry, you're seeing a lot of marketing automation players like an Infusionsoft, like a HubSpot. You just saw a Marketo just got picked up by Adobe for $5 billion, et cetera. So you're seeing a lot of those players, but they're just only focused on marketing automation. And then if you're trying to integrate that with your CRM, then you got to do exports and imports and that kind of stuff. From the Act brand, what you see is one integrated platform that has both CRM and marketing automation. So very, very functionally rich CRM and world-class marketing automation all in one, and you don't have to do any exports or whatever. So for the layman, what that means is anything you do in CRM is available for you in your marketing automation, and anything you do in marketing automation is available for you in your CRM. Just so everyone's on the same page, so SwiftPage actually owns ACT, which is the CRMs plus marketing automation, right? Correct. Yeah. So SwiftPage is the company and ACT is our product line. 
Okay, that's very simple. And I come from a sales background, so it makes sense to me what a CRM, like you said, I appreciate you kind of breaking down is a customer relationship management software. And if someone didn't know, if you're in sales, for instance, when I started off, came out of college, I had an Excel sheet where I'd put, okay, the first name, last name, the person, email, phone number, et cetera. And then I'd have another column next to it, the date that I contacted this person. Well, let's just say I have a hundred contacts. I'm just getting started. When I wanted to switch the date on there, when I emailed the person, because I was just using Outlook just to make sure I was, okay, now I'm talking to this person. But after a couple of months, you realize this is like a one-to-one -one ratio. I don't have the ability to put other information in here. And it's kind of like a bitch just to track what date I sent this. Do I add another column? What do I do? What a CRM basically does, it's much more powerful where you can, depending on the CRM that you're using, they're simple ones and complex ones like you were talking about. Right. What I found is exactly what you're saying. The complex ones would be so complex that it'd be too hard to figure out. Was it automatically tracking an email that I sent to John Doe or was it not? And then it just got really overcomplicated. You're saying your CRM is more focused on making it more easier and automating it into the marketing aspect is what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, what you're really discussing is what I like to call the four C's of information. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but the four C's very simple are currency, correctness, consistency, and completeness. And if you're a salesperson or if you're a marketing person or if you're a small business owner, if you don't have control over the four C's of your information, it's going to be really hard for you to have a relationship with your customer. And if you don't have a relationship with your customer, it's going to be really hard for you to continue to grow. I'll just real quickly talk about the four C's and why our package really handles that, but why if you're looking for any kind of technology, you should be looking for something to handle that. So currency and correctness, those two go hand in hand. If you don't have my current email, if you don't have my current phone number or whatever, you're not going to be able to get in touch with me. You're not even going to be able to come out of the gates. So it's got to be up to date. And then correctness is the same thing if it's wrong or if I've moved or whatever. So currency and correctness go hand in hand. If you don't have that, you're dead in the water. And if you go back to your example, if you're in a spreadsheet, you constantly have to go back into that spreadsheet or go back into your contacts now and update it. Whereas you really want to get software that essentially says like, hey, any interaction that I've had with you, it checks and says, is your email still the same? No, automatically update it. Those types of things. Currency and correctness are the first two C's. Table stakes, got to have them. If you don't, you're dead in the water. Consistency is a real issue in today's environment, particularly in the small business, because what happens is there are so many tools that are out there, Austin, that, and they're cheap, right? I mean, there's tons of people. And so small businesses are using three and four and sometimes five different tools to run their business. The problem is, is now you have information in five different tools. And if that information is not consistent across all five of those, then it gets right back to the first two C's. It's probably not going to be current and it's probably not going to be correct. You have to make sure you have consistency. What you're looking for in a tool at that point in time is, can the tools you're using, can they interface or interact or connect with the other tools and can information flow between them so that if you make a change in one, it flows into the other. And that keeps it consistent. It also keeps it current and correct. And then the four C is completeness. And completeness is probably the most important. And everybody thinks completeness is, well, you know, John's got two addresses and two emails and that kind of stuff. And we got to make sure we have all of that. And that's really important information that does mean complete. But when we talk about completeness, it's capturing every single interaction you have with a customer, prospect, a lead, et cetera. It's not just the fact that I had a meeting with John, got to capture that. I had a phone call with John, got to capture that. He and I emailed each other, got to capture that, keep the actual 
actual copy of the email, etc. I did a transaction, you know, that's right. Any type of interaction, all that information needs to come back into your CRM and then be captured and associated with John or with the company or something along those lines. That's completeness. So if you have all of that information, the four C's of information, you're going to have a great relationship with your customers. You're going to be converting more leads to customers and your business is going to continue to grow. And that's really what ACT helps you do. I don't want to become too much of like a sales pitch even here, but hopefully people are getting an idea, especially if you don't even know what a CRM is, because we have all different types of listeners who might not be in the marketing realm to try to, oh, I have to keep in contact with this person. But especially, I always just think sales guys, because they always have to be in contact with people. And like you were saying, even with my old Excel sheet, as a simple example, I think kind of that's maybe how people get started. And then try to research a better way to do it is like, okay, I would send out emails all the times, but what happens if I wanted to send out mailers to the person? Well, then I had to put a whole another five more columns with address information and then count when I needed a mailer and everything. People can understand just having a CRM where all that information is in there. And then the next step is that's the problem today is that it just seems like you have so many tools that eventually like everyone's gun ho about it. I think usually the first 24, 48 hours, maybe a week, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I always start off simple because that's what you need to do. When I was reaching out to you, I've got a list of people that I want to reach out to, but I need to put them in a CRM eventually in order to make sure I can track them. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. So it makes sense that, okay, so Swiss Page is the company, Act is your product. I think we're all on the same page now, pun intended. Why don't we reel it back to the beginning now? Because you said, how old are you? 56. Yeah. I'm looking at your educational history. Do you want to go back to whatever you think is the best place to start? I know you went to Rutgers early on. Well, we can go all the way back there. That's fine. What do I always tell everybody is I'm an East Coast street punk with an education. I'm your worst nightmare. Uh That's how people should look at me. So I was born in New Jersey. I get kind of hung out there. And I was a big athlete when I was a kid. I was quarterback on the football team and kind of went to a very, very large high school where, you know, we were very successful with state championships and et cetera. And I got recruited and went to a small division two school out in Iowa and played four years of football out there called William Penn came out and realized really quickly that, holy smokes, it's the early 80s. I don't know what I want to do other than the fact that I was really interested in computers. So I decided to go back to school and went to Rutgers, got a computer science degree. So came out of school and the computer science did like everybody else did and went into consulting and started working for a small consulting firm that was back then was putting in what was called MRP systems. So it went MRP, then MRP2, then ERP. I'm really kind of showing my age here. What's MRP and all that mean, all those acronyms? Manufacturing Resource Planning. So it was putting in a full financial systems. It was putting in inventory management systems. It was border entry systems. Before then, people were putting in these little pockets of applications. And around the late 70s, early 80s, they started bringing them together as one package and then implementing. We were putting them into pharmaceutical companies and CPG companies. We're starting to say like, hey, if I could implement this package that had everything integrated, I didn't have to spend all this money of getting somebody to write an interface from my inventory management system to my account receivable and accounts payable system. So that's really what MRP was. And then it kind of got a little bit larger and became MRP too. In the 90s, it was really around ERP, enterprise resource planning, where they added everything else. You know, they added some HR systems were in there. Any system that you had that was running your business was all glommed into one big package and it was called the ERP. That's kind of the evolution. 
I was working for companies like Kellogg's at the time. And the guys at Kellogg's decided to say, hey, if you're done with consulting, why don't you come work for us? And I said, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to give that a shot. And so I left the consulting world and went to Kellogg's. That, I would say, was another major turning point in my career because at that point, what I realized very, very quickly is I said to myself, I want to get to the C-suite. And so, you know, and I was like a programmer, project manager. I was doing all different kinds of stuff in the technology world in consulting. I said to myself, I need to get to the C-suite. What's the fastest way I can get to the C-suite? And it was, I said, I think I'm going to become this thing back then, or, you know, the CIO, the chief information officer. How do I get there? When I got into Kellogg's, I was trying to figure out how do you navigate the world of politics inside of large companies. And what I realized is that I was going to basically volunteer for any crap job that there was, any job that anybody didn't want. I was going to take it and then I was going to do a great job on it. And then I would take the next one, the next one. So I became this go-to guy. They were just like, hey, you know, we need somebody to go over to Germany, shut down this plant, move everything over to Manchester, England. And I was like, yep, that's me. And they're like, really? You're the tech guy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. And they're like, okay, move everything over there, get there and, you know, make that happen. And I'll tell you what, that was a real crap job. (laughs) Uh, But that's what I kept on doing it. And what it did is I just kept moving up and faster and faster. Well, one second, if you don't mind, how old were you when you joined Kellogg's? And then Kellogg's, this is basically like the cereal brand that if people don't know, right? Yeah. Okay. Big cereal company out of Battle Creek, Michigan. So yeah, I was probably in my late 20s and I stayed there through my early 30s. Well, tell us specifically, you just said that crap job, because that sounds interesting to me. You volunteering, because this is smart. Anyone who's in a company that size, it seems like a good idea to me as well to be able to do these jobs that other people don't want. You're going to get noticed. But tell us about specifically that job where you had to fly over there and close down a plant, because I don't think I'll ever have to do that. Yeah. So it was interesting. At the time, Kellogg's was a US-based company with a bunch of international subsidiaries. And I don't know if everybody remembers, but in the 80s, it was really every large company that was set up like Kellogg said, you know, we're going to become this global company. But then nobody knew how to do that. They basically said, well, the way that we're going to do that is we're going to start by creating four regional companies. And then once we get the regional companies, then we could roll it into a global company. What they decided was they were going to create this pan-European company. They were going to headquarter it in Manchester, England. So what that meant that they had to do is they had to go into each individual country. So Kellogg's was in all the countries in Europe. They had to go into each individual country, shut down the company, if you would, leave what's needed to be left in the country, i.e. sales and marketing, sometimes manufacturing, and move everything else to a shared service back in the headquarters in Manchester, England. And then, oh, by the way, put all kinds of software over top of that to automate all the processes. So that was kind of the big, large project. That was first and foremost, I kind of volunteered to be on that project. So I got myself over into Manchester, England, and we started working on doing that and convincing all of these countries and companies inside these countries that to give up control of anything that they had and just focus on what they needed to was extremely difficult. Underlying that, I mean, here's a really interesting thing. Almost every country had their own manufacturing plant and they were doing the same thing. They were making cornflakes in Germany and in England and France and you don't need to do that. So why don't you have a plant that is a flake plant and then have another plant that's a protrusion plant or something like that. And then that way you could be more efficient associated with that. So it went all the way down to the core and everything was working, everything was doing good, but we just couldn't get Germany to kind of play nice. And that's how I got sent over there. It was about an eight month gig to go over there and 
work side by side with a lot of other folks and shut down the plant, uh, move all the systems and that type of stuff. Just so we're on the same page, so Kellogg's would go into these countries, kind of set up these mini companies first, and then after they got big enough, then you would try to put them all underneath the Kellogg again? Or No, no. So the way Kellogg was grown, right? So again, go back to Kellogg was a US-based company with a bunch of international subsidiaries. Over the years, as they've grown, they've either opened up companies in countries or acquired companies in countries all underneath the Kellogg brand. And so that's how they kind of done that. The problem was that each country was an operating company. They operated the same thing. Think about it just from a cost perspective, you were duplicating finance, you were duplicating IT, you were duplicating HR, you were duplicating everything. When you say you're going to become a global company, you said, okay, how do you leverage shared services? So how do you have one IT organization in Europe, one HR organization, et cetera? So now what you had to do is go into each of these countries and say, okay, you're an individual operating company, but we don't want you to be an operating company. We want you to focus on growing the country. And when you grow the country, you we want to grow sales. That's what you're mainly going to do is sales and local marketing in country, maybe some local manufacturing if needed, but everything else is going to be a shared service and that's all going to move over to the headquarters or to the shared service operating center, wherever that may be. You know, it's a big change if you think about it. Every single large Fortune 50 company in the 70s and 80s was doing it. It was a big thing. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. That's what I was thinking too. So you're saying, yeah, they did set up these smaller companies, but they're trying to become more efficient. And now with information technology or whatever, they have to kind of take out some of that control. Right. Okay. And Germany wasn't willing to do it. So you're like, y'all need to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. You know, in that period of time, I was my first real interaction into Europe and European countries and different cultures and companies. And what you find is that it was crazy. I mean, it was like the Germans hated the British. Everybody hated the French and the French hated everybody. The people from Denmark were siding with Germany. It was like World War II all over again. It was absolutely really crazy from a cultural perspective to kind of work your way through that. Coming from the US, you were just like, wow, this is nuts. And of course, they all thought the US people were nuts too. Getting thrown into the deep end of understanding culture and figuring out how to be successful in different cultures really fast. <laughs> So you're in your early to mid thirties when you're nearing your end at Kellogg. I mean, did you get moved to sea level or what happened from there? Yeah, you know, I kind of moved my way up into director level and, you know, that kind of stuff. I kind of moved all around and did different jobs for them down in Latin America, over in Asia Pacific as well. And it got to the point where it really looked like I was just going to continue to be a utility guy. And I did see that I was going to be able to continue to grow. So then I actually did a is interesting. What I thought was a startup, it was actually kind of crazy. I got hired into a holding company called Land America Financial based back out of Philadelphia. 
And that company, we went out and acquired Commonwealth land title, Transnation land title, and lawyers title insurance companies and became the largest title insurance company in the U.S. and took on First American, who at that time was the largest title insurance company. And that was my first shot to hit the C-suite. I actually became the chief technology officer and I was really doing operations as well. So I really could have held the title of chief operating officer as well. I was the person who was responsible for doing all the integration and making sure that all the operations of actually fulfilling the title policies and doing the title change searches and things like that were getting completed. So that was a wild drive. We took that one public at 19 bucks a share. When I left, we were at 65 bucks a share. So we had a great run. That really was my first step into the C-suite and kind of understanding what that meant. I didn't know anything about title insurance other than the fact that I bought a house a few times, but we learned very, very rapidly. That was kind of a fun thing from there. Yeah. So it's the end of the 90s. And basically, I don't know if you want to fast forward, you hooked up with a few other companies and then decided you want to become an entrepreneur or where should we take it from here? Yeah. So just real quickly, you know, I went from Land America to Johnson Johnson and went back into the international world, did some more roles down in Latin America. Then I connected with a guy by the name of Jerry Stead here in Denver to do the IHS gig. And this was a crazy one. I would just like take two minutes to just talk about this one because this is... What's IHS everyone is? IHS was at the time, IHS stood for Information Handling Services. And at the time, it was a $200 million privately held company that basically provided energy information and engineering specs and standards information out into the marketplace. So we were basically selling information. It was 44-year-old company, stagnated. It was part of the TBG or Tyson Board of Missing Group portfolio. Jerry sat on the board of TBG. They asked him to take this company over and either sell it or do something with it. Jerry kind of went out, handpicked a bunch of us to come in in 2003. This is how I got to Colorado. I got a phone call from Jerry. He said, hey, get out of New Jersey. Come over to Colorado. We got this wild gig we're going to do called IHS. We came in, like I said, 200 million. It was in 56 countries. It was a mess. It was technically bankrupt. And we had to clean it up. We had to take it, get it Starbase compliant because we wanted to take it public. And then we wanted to hypergrow it. It took us two years to clean it up and get it Starbase Noctily compliant. We took it public in November of 2005 at 16 bucks a share. And from 05 to early 2010, when I walked out, we did 37 acquisitions. We were about 2 billion in revenue and the stock was trading at 111 bucks a share. Wild wild, crazy ride. You can't even imagine. I mean, there were times where we were doing two and three acquisitions in a month. It was just absolutely a wild, crazy ride, but it was fun. You know, I say all this because this is the backdrop of how I got to SwiftPage. One second. Yeah. I think it's good. So now we got the build up on everything. But before, yeah, you start talking about SwiftPage. So it, it makes sense that we're dealing with technology. That's kind of what you've been your forte the whole time. And then you're talking about how much this went up in shares. I mean, how old were you when you left IHS? Oh my gosh. So I left this 2010, eight. So I was in my forties. Okay. Yeah. So did you make tons of money? Cause you keep talking about the stocks or like, had you saved up money or anything up to this point? Yes. I've been blessed. You know, lots of hard work, you know, lots of tenacity as I like to talk about it. But yeah, I've been blessed to be at the right place at the right time on some of these deals. You were just getting stock options or something when you were helping grow IHS, you're saying? 
typically what you get is you get either options or at the point we were getting what's called restricted stock units. I don't know if anybody's familiar with those, but instead of options, you actually get the restricted stock unit itself. You know, an option is gets a certain strike price. So let's say you get an option at five bucks a share is the strike price, which means that when you're ready to exercise that option, let's say if the stock has grown from five bucks to 10 bucks, will you exercise that you have to pay five bucks for that and then you make five bucks. So you only make as much money as the stock goes up. On a restricted stock unit, you get the actual shares. There's no strike price or whatever. Now there's different tax implications associated with that. We won't get into that. This is a whole nother don't want to put people to sleep. podcast that you can have, right? Yeah. But you know, restricted stock units are much better for that. Just you get the value of the stock no matter what it is. Whether the stock goes up or down, it doesn't really matter. But it's good if it goes up for you, right? Oh, yeah. Right. It's always good when it goes up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> for sure. So I got into this position where I was in a good financial position. I was starting to do some angel investing on the side as well. Is that because you just quit the company because you were happy? Because I just want everyone to understand where you were from like a personal standpoint too, before we talk how Swift Page started here, because this yeah. is a transition because you were all about being a C-level guy in these bigger companies. But did you just want to quit IHS for personal reasons or what was the deal with that? You know, you get burned out. Right. If you can imagine the treadmill we were on for seven, eight years, however long we were on it, it was first and foremost, you're a publicly traded company everything that goes along with that. But it was the acquisitions, the integrations, the continuing, you know, it just, you looked at yourself and you're like, I'm never getting off this treadmill. <laughs> and it's time for me to get off the treadmill and sit back and relax a little bit type of thing. So it really became that point. It was funny because most of us that were at IHS that came in in that early 2003 timeframe, that's kind of when we all got there. In that late 2009 to late 2010, early 2011, all of us left, except for Jerry. Jerry stayed on and <laughs> continued to grow the company, actually grew at the 13 billion over the years. So we all kind of went on and we all went on to do different things. A bunch of us went on to be CEOs of companies and others went on to be other CFOs or whatever. I think it was really about the, it was time. It was time to say like, man, let's take a step back and breathe for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you're still in Denver, Colorado at that point? I am. You know, it's funny when I came out to Denver to do the IHS deal, my wife said, I told her, I said, you know, it's about a three year gig. We'll be in and out of there in three years. And we got here and holy smokes, we just fell in love with it. It's a fantastic place. It's such a great community. It's a great place to raise kids. You know, you've got this wild tech community that's happening in both Boulder and Denver. And then, you know, you've got the mountains that are an hour away. So it's a place that we're, we decided that we were going to stay. And did you have any kids? I do. We have four kids and three grandkids. Wow. We got a whole gaggle. I think up to this point, you're in your mid 40s, right? In 2010? 2010, I was, yeah, about mid 40s. Yep. Okay. So just to paint the picture, I mean, it seems like everything's gone right in life as far as like working wise, at least y'all were happy. You sounds like you made a ton of money, but personally, you sound like you were just getting burned out working a lot of hours and realize that if you have this excess money, you have opportunity to relax a little bit. So is that what happened? Yeah, pretty much so. And it was just like, you know, it really was, is, is there a way I can give back? Around 2003, 2004, I started getting very involved in the Colorado Technology Association here in Denver and really saying, how do I help the tech community really grow here? And what can I do to give back? My wife, Linda, we were into things like kids tech and open world learning is how do we enable kids in underprivileged schools to get access to technology and that sort of stuff. So we really started getting into those types of things, which was very rewarding for us. Okay. So why don't you take it from there? Because it sounds like everything had been going pretty well and that 
maybe you're seeking more purpose too and not because i think all of us get to that point where we feel we're on a treadmill we need a change and especially like i said if you've got the money to retire early or do whatever you want then obviously people should take that opportunity if they're seeking that yep what i always tell folks is that when you wake up in the morning if you're not super jazzed to do what you're doing man find something else because life is too dang short because <laughs> that's how I felt when I was my and other companies. Eventually, like I was like that at first, but then I just got tired of doing it. If it's not as fun and you're not making money and it's just like, or even if you are making money, just like you said, life's too short. What did we do from after we got out of IHS and when Startup Swift page? I did a quick gig at Digital Globe. And I don't know if you know Digital Globe or not, but it's the satellite company that has a bunch of satellites flying around, takes uh, pictures of the earth and brings them back in and sells them. The U.S. government's the largest customer. I came on board to help them from a strategy. They asked me to be their chief strategy officer and kind of help them figure out where they wanted to go. And you know, I did that and helped them acquire their largest competitor and did a small gig there. That was about two and a half year gig. And that was a really good one too. Walked in, they were publicly traded. They were about 16, 17 bucks a share and their share price doubled when I was there too. We had a good run on that. But how I got the Swift page, because this is is the funny story. So Bob Ogden is the actual founder of SwiftPage. SwiftPage was founded in 2001 here in Denver, Colorado by a gentleman named Bob Ogden, who's a serial entrepreneur. This is his fifth company. It was really founded as a little email marketing company. Think of like a constant contact or a MailChimp. If people that are around today will know those companies. That's kind of what SwiftPage was back in 2001. And I've known Bob for a long period of time. He convinced me to invest in SwiftPage. So I was an early investor in SwiftPage back in 03 and 04, did a round for them, did a second round in 05. By 2006, he'd asked me to put a third round in and I was like, brother, what are you doing with the money that I'm giving you? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you keep asking me for more. I said, you know what? I think I better start coming in and helping advise you a little bit. Yeah, I said, right. Look after your own money. Yeah, that's exactly what I was. I didn't tell him that. You know, that's what I was doing. And he said, oh man, I'd love it. Any help I can get, great. So I came in and they had an okay product. The email market was called Swift Page Connect. It was okay, but there was no real significant differentiator between Swift Page Connect, Constant Contact, MailChimp, Mad Mimi was out there. There was about tons of these little email marketing companies out there. And there was no real differentiator. And they were really focused on the small business, the SMBs. And it's really hard to get to an SMB. It's very expensive to get it, acquire a customer. And so what I told them, you've got to find a channel. You've got to find another company that has a lot of small businesses as their customers and figure out a way to OEM your technology into their technology. And that will become a channel to get you to the end user. And that makes sense. Yeah. What's OEM stand for? So we're on the same page? It's called it something manufacturer. It stands for, you know, how you embed your technology into other people's technology. Okay. It does stand for something. I can't remember it right now, but. Yeah, that's fine. But okay, that makes sense. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So you're telling him to get a company that has all these smaller because it costs too much to go individually to find them. Yeah. And so if you think about it, what's the first thing that would come to anybody's mind when you think about small businesses that are using technology? And at that time it was Intuit, QuickBooks. Everybody had QuickBooks, right? Okay. So it was yeah. just like, man, if you can embed your technology or OEM your technology into QuickBooks and get it down there, that would be fantastic. You got to go to Intuit. That's what I told him. But the problem is everybody else in the world was going to Intuit and trying to make that happen. And Intuit was basically saying, get away from me. You know, we got hundreds of thousands of people trying to do that. So we weren't going to break that code. So then we found a company called Sage. And basically Sage is a European company. It's based out of the UK. And Sage is basically the Intuit of Europe. So they had these small financial software packages that they were selling over in Europe. 
you had the big Intuit player was in the US and Sage was the big player in Europe. Long story is we cracked the code with Sage. And at the time, Sage was owning or owned ACT, SalesLogix, and Sage CRM. So three CRM products. Plus they had another product called Sage 50, which was like QuickBooks. We struck a deal with Sage and we embedded our technology into those four packages. So Act, SalesLogix, Sage CRM, and Sage 50. And it was wildly successful. So the company, SwiftPage, went from no revenue to 4 million revenue overnight. Okay, how about we stop it here? Because this is, I think, especially our listeners, this is something they could learn from big time, right? Mm-hmm. How many people worked at SwiftPage at that point? About seven. <laughs> okay, so you had seven people. And then you're trying to strike a deal with this European company to try to get in their product. So just tell us a little bit more in detail, like how you're able to do that and what we could learn from what you did there. Yeah, so this is a great point because this is, if anybody's listening, get on your keyboard or, you know, God forbid, if you still have write stuff with a pen and paper, write this down. Because when we first talked to Sage, they were just like very similar to Intuit. You know, get out of here, get away. We don't want you. And so, you know, we were all bummed out. We decided, we said, you know what? Sage had a very large channel, so VAR, so value-added resellers. And those are people that were selling the Sage software and then also doing services around it or whatever. So we went to the VARs and we said, here's the deal. We will give you Swift Page Connect for free to run your business if you sell it. And they said, well, we'll take it for free first and we'll look at it. So what they did is these VARs were small companies. So they were anywhere from you know two-person shops to maybe 20-person shops. And think of them as like technology people that were going in and implementing financials into your company and helping you set it up. So we gave them then Swift Page Connect, an email marketing product so that they could stay connected with their customers and email their customers. That was a big leap of faith for us because number one, it was costing us money to have them run that because we had to host it and you know, all that kind of stuff. And we were giving it to them for free. And all of a sudden they started liking it and they were just like, wow, this is great. And we we're like, well then sell it, right? <laughs> so then they started selling it. And then once they started selling it, then we said, now you got to put pressure on Sage to embed this into all these other packages because if it was that, then think how much more you could sell. And they did. And so we got the pressure of the channel, which was a very, very large portion of revenue for Sage, pushing Batch on Sage and saying, you got to embed this technology into these products. And then finally Sage cracked. And that's how we did the deal. Okay. So these VARs are you saying are just smaller companies that were working with Sage? Yeah. So they're channel partners, right? What they do is they were selling Sage's products. Okay. And then they would put services on top of that. They would get some kind of a commission for the sale of the software. And that was getting paid to them by Sage. Obviously Sage got the revenue for the software. And then they would also get revenue for the services directly from the customers that they would provide. How did you find these smaller companies that were selling Sage's products? Because again, I want to spend some time here because this seems really smart. Now, I'm wondering like what the time period, how long this all took. I mean, after Sage said no initially, after y'all went to them. Yeah. You know, some people might just quit then, yep. but you got to be persistent and keep thinking, what else can you do? That's right. So yeah, just tell us about the timeline and then like how long this took to get these people on. Yeah, I think it was, it probably took like through all of 2006, maybe about midway through 2007 is when it really, really started. Sage kind of cracked in. We did at the end of 2006, Sage was like, okay, let's go ahead and sign the deal. So about a year before Sage cracked and then about a half a year before we worked and got everything embedded in there. And then, you know, like mid 2007 on is when it really started taking off. How do you find those people who are selling the Sage products? That was just really smart to not give up there and go find them because was it a strategic way to find those people and kind of push on them? 
again, it's just common sense, right? You just start looking around. And we found was that every year, Sage was holding a conference. They called it their partner conference, where they brought all their partners, all their VARs and everything together in one location. They called it the Sage Summit. And we said, we got to go there. <laughs> and that's what we did. We went there and that's how we got to know all these people. Just talking to them saying, hey, you want to try this thing? We'll give it to you for free and you know that kind of stuff. And then just following up the folks that we connected with, connect us with others. And then the next thing you know, we got on their mailing list. So yeah, it was just totally infiltrating into it. And that's how we got to know them. So again, it was smart to go to that conference because then they're all there and you can actually know who they are versus like Googling. I feel like it'd be kind of hard maybe to find out exactly who they were selling, yeah. especially if it's mid 2000s. You can do some back searching, I guess, but it still doesn't seem to be that easy. And just so everyone understands, this was basically it took a year, year and a half for you to, this doesn't happen overnight, no, just like any no. company, right? Okay. It sounds really quick because we're talking about it in five minutes, but to keep pushing on them and doing that, I mean, were they getting a commission by them pushing back on Sage to sell this product? too? Or how did you influence them more to push back on Sage to get you on there? Yeah. If they sold our software inside of Sage's software, then yes, they would get a commission from us as well. And they were looking at it as well. All these customers of the Sage software, if they could get our software in there, that was just more money in their pocket. And quite frankly, it was more money in Sage's pocket as well. So it was a good business decision for Sage. They just needed something to push them over the edge a little bit. And we used the VARs or the channel partners to really push and influence them to say, yeah, we should probably do this. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long term that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. But, <laughs> I'm but feeling you. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole you know thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? So let's well, fast forward, we'll go to the zero to 4 million. I mean, that must have been pretty exciting you're saying when that happened. You keep thinking and hoping it's gonna happen, but you don't necessarily know if it is, but just tell us about the overnight and then what happened from there. Yeah, so the team was doing well, you know, Bob was happy. I think the team grew to about 15 people. We didn't have to rapidly grow a whole bunch of people to make that happen. Once that became successful, then we said, we kind of should try and maybe replicate that, <laughs> right? Right, yeah, makes we sense. We got this, let's go find the next stage to do that. It was about mid-2007. We spent a lot of time, the 15 folks in the company, and again, I wasn't here full-time. I was kind of on just, again, advisory board type of thing. They were really focusing a lot of time on managing the Sage account. And they did that through the rest of 07, through the rest of 08. And we hit 09, the revenue had really started to grow, like I said, up to about $4 million. Then Sage came back to them and said, you know what? I think we're going to acquire you. You're in four of our products. It makes sense for us to just acquire you. And they were off in 11 times revenue. And I said, Bob, 
my God, brother, take the money and run like you stole something. I don't care what piece of paper you put in front of you. Don't even sign. Just get a stamp with your name on it. Any paper you put in front of you, just stamp it. You know, just go, man. You want your money back. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, but for him as a friend and as a company, right, 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 right. fantastic, right? I said, okay, listen, we have to form a formal board. Let's get some structure on there. You know, I helped them form a board. I got on the board. I had a lot of acquisition experience. One of our other friends, a guy by the name of Doug Robinson, who was an investment banker, we got him on the board. We had enough horsepower on the board to help Bob through this potential acquisition deal. And you know, it was going, went to the 11th hour and it fell through as deals do. In my lifetime, I probably have done over 50 deals. I would say that 150 deals have fallen through. More deals fall through than deals happen and for various reasons. It took almost all of 2009 to go through this. And this is early 2010 and deal falls through and Bob and the team are wildly disappointed. And they're like, what are we going to do? And, you know, and I said, you're just going to grow your business. Don't worry about it. That's something else will come. And yeah, because y'all were still within the Sage products still at that point, right? We were. Yeah. Still in the Sage products. So I said, go back to the strategy we said is replicate it. Go out and find another Sage and execute that contract or whatever. The team was really struggling. They were finding all different types of parties. They were trying to get contracts together, but it just nothing was really connecting. And fast forward to 2012, January of 2012. And I always tell this funny story is like we had a board meeting and, you know, it was like, man, we look exactly the same as we did in 2010. We hadn't grown. We were still at 4 million, but we were spending a crap load of money trying to grow. We weren't profitable. We're all sitting there and we're like, oh man, I went to the restroom and I came back and next thing you know, they said, we voted you in as CEO. And I was like, guys, no, there's a bathroom rule, man. If you go to the bathroom, you cannot be voted in as CEO. So I'm joking, but they really said, John, we need you to come in here to grow this business. And I said, oh man, I was just literally finishing up the deal at Digital Globe. And I said, I got about another six, seven months that I have to finish up this deal with the acquisition over there, et cetera. It's going to take me a while. So I think we should find somebody else, quite frankly. And they said, no, 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 you're the one, you know, this and so. Did you want to do it? At first, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, especially, yeah, they're quote unquote voting in when you're gone, you know, because if you wanted to do it, then it probably would have been your idea, right? Yeah. But then I will tell you, a couple of weeks later, Bob and I went out to dinner, just he and I, and we call it the infamous Palm Restaurant, Palm Restaurant here in town. We went there, we had a couple martinis, had dinner, a couple of bottles of wine, and Bob was just like, and I could just see it. I mean, this is one that he really, really wanted to really take off. And I said, I'm going to do this for you, brother. I'm going to come in. I, we were actually just kind of convinced each other that we could change the world for the SMB. That was really the thought process is how do we change the world for the SMB, the small business player? And that kind of got me jazzed. I will tell you that I started thinking about it. Wow, there's tons of tools out there and that kind of stuff, but nobody's really bringing it all together. And if we could do that, that would be crazy and wild. After a while, I was like, yeah, I want to do this. Worked my way out of Digital Globe. I officially took over in July of 2012. When I officially took over as CEO, we were a 15-person company crammed in a little tiny office here in Colorado. And the first thing that we did, as I said, guys, we don't have a growth strategy. We kind of did. I think this is really important for the listeners to understand because we looked at the entire SMB platform, the market, and we said, we believe that every small business needs four digital pillars 
in order to grow. And we call them presence, traffic, conversion, retention, and optimization tools. Just think about that for a second because if you're a small business and you're listening to this, you need to make sure that you've got these four pillars working and working in harmony, you'll grow your business, guaranteed. Anyway, let's go back to what they are. So presence, traffic, conversion, retention, optimization tools. So presence, everybody knows what that is. Gotta have a website, gotta have a Facebook page, gotta be on LinkedIn, you gotta have presence and digital presence. Traffic, of course, is SEO, SEM, all the stuff that drives traffic to that presence. Now, when you do that, that creates leads. Then what you have to do is you have to convert those leads to customers, retain them, and grow them. That's what conversion and retention is. And then optimization tools are things like financial software, HR software, payment tools. If you have those four pillars, a small business will grow. Now, we were dabbling in what we were now calling conversion and retention. We had this little email marketing platform in that. So we said our strategy was, and I told Bob, I said, we will own conversion and retention for the small business worldwide. That's what we're going to do. We will become the 800-pound gorilla in conversion retention. And Bob looked me square in the eye and he said, great, but how the hell are we going to do that, John? I mean, that sounds great. You know, go write a book something or something like that. But come on, man, be practical. We're not going to do it. I said, yeah, we are. And he said, well, how are we going to do that? I said, the only way I know how to do that is through acquisition. And he said, okay, what do we acquire? And I said, well, the first thing you need to find is what is the anchor of conversion and retention? What is the center of the universe, the bullseye? What is that anchor? And we said, CRM. CRM is the anchor or the center of the universe of conversion retention. And he said, okay. I said, so now we're going to go out and acquire a CRM system. And he said, okay, <laughs> we're 4 million. We're burning money. How the heck are we going to acquire? I said, don't worry about that. Let's first find one and then we'll figure that out. We looked across the board. We looked at Base. We looked at Nimble. We looked at Zoho. Zoho was way too big at the time. We looked at Insightly. We looked at all of them. And the answer was right in front of our freaking face and we didn't see it. It was so funny, right? It was that. But anyway, three weeks into the gig, we had all that I just talked about was all done in the first week of July when I first got in here. We just locked ourselves in a room and got through all of this. And then three weeks into the gig, we get notified by Sage that they were divesting seven companies and two of the companies were acting sales logics. Think about that for a second. Almost all of our revenue was coming through Sage products. Two of the biggest products that they were coming through was Act and Sales Logics, and they were divesting those. And we were just like, oh my God. From a defensive standpoint, we're like, what the heck, man? This could kill the business if somebody else buys these and shuts us down or pulls us out, you know, et cetera. Bob said, what are we going to do? And that's because SwiftPage was connected. Those were the two main kind of companies that were using y'all. If they're going to be divested out of Sage, that means they don't have to stay with y'all anymore. They're going to make their own decision if they're going to become their own company, right? Well, no, whoever would have bought them would make that decision. So yeah, we were in four Sage companies. We were in Act, SalesLogic, Sage CRM, and then Sage 50. Act and SalesLogic were 70% of our revenue and the other two were about 30% of our revenue. 70% of our revenue was at risk. This is a really funny story for your listeners because this is exactly what happened. Bob just happened to be over in the UK and he happened to be in the Sage headquarters over in Newcastle, UK, the day that Sage informed us that we were going to divest the company. So now it's like two o'clock in the morning, my time. And Bob calls me on the phone just for everybody that purposes. I do have my phone right next to my bed. And if you call me at two o'clock in the morning, I do answer the phone. I'm one of those weird people. So I pick up the phone and he tells me this whole story. He goes, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, you're going to march your butt right back into that office and you're going to tell them that we're going to buy act. And he said, 
I can't do that. I said, yes, yes, you can. You can. I swear to God, Bob, you can do it. He goes, no, he goes, how are we going? I said, don't worry about the how. Just tell him you're going to do it. And so it took us about 45 minutes on the phone, me convincing Bob to go into, <laughs> go into the office and tell him. So he did. We mustered up the courage and he walks into a guy by the name of Gavin May's office. Gavin was the head of Corp Dev for Sage. And he said, Gavin, we're going to buy Act. And to Gavin's credit, he didn't laugh. That was good. And he actually said, you know what? He said, you probably are the best people to buy ACT, but I don't see how you're ever going to be able to do that. But thank you very much. So now we're all, you know, whatever. And I said, no, don't let this go. Get it on a plane. Get back. We'll figure this out. Then I got on the horn with Gavin and we started having conversations. And he said, listen, John, he said, we're going to bundle all seven products and we're going to sell them all at one time. And I said, that's not going to work. You know that. I know that. And he goes, no, no, it's going to work. I was like, yeah, okay. When it doesn't work, let me know. About another 30 days go by, Gavin called, hey, you still interested? Yep, we're still interested. He goes, hey, that didn't work. I said, yep, you owe me a dollar. Anyway, so he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to split them into two bundles. Four companies we're going to sell and then three companies. And I said, okay, well, what's the three? He said, Axe, Sales Logic, and a software called NPS or uh, Nonprofit Software, which is a financial software. I said, well, I, I don't want three. I can't. It's going hard for me to buy one. Right, right. Can't buy three. And again, this is the Sage people. You had told the Sage guy, like they're trying to bundle these seven companies together. Yeah. And you're like, hey, it doesn't make sense. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Then they call you back. Now they're into, you know, these three, you know, three and four. So he said, I know you can't buy three. He said, but. Buy one, get one. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much that's what happened. But there's a firm called Excel KKR, which is a private equity firm. And he's Tom Barnes, managing director. They're very interested in MPS. You're interested in ACT. You know, why don't I connect you two together and you guys figure this out? I said, okay. So call Tom Barnes over at Excel KKR. They're based out in Menlo Park. And he said, yeah, let's get together. Bob and I get on an airplane. We fly out to Menlo Park. We go into Tom's office and Austin, I have the picture of this. In two hours, Tom and another guy by the name of Dean Jacobson mapped this whole thing out on the whiteboard. And I got a picture of the whiteboard. And he's like, this is how we're going to acquire all three companies. We'll get MPS and you're going to get Act and Sales Logics. And I was like, but I don't want Sales Logics. <laughs> he's just like, they just kept talking past me on that. They're just like, you're going to get it. Don't worry about that. And I'm like, ah. And I said, okay. Um, we map it out. We go in, we put the bid in. And so now this is time frame is like October of 2012 that this is all happening. We get back, we're going through October and into November. We get the night before Thanksgiving and we get the message back from Sage that we didn't get it. Somebody else came in and underbid us or overbid us. And we're just like, ah, you know, so we are completely devastated at this point. Especially through this much time you're putting in to map it out, figure all this out. I mean, I think anyone would. I am just kind of like listening, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was just like, oh, you know, so we said, all right, just hang in there. And they said, we're going to announce the whole thing on December 5th or whatever the date was at our quarterly analyst call. And we said, okay, I think it was December 5th comes around. We're listening on the call. Now, again, this is two or three o'clock in the morning, our time, because they're over in Europe. I'm sitting there listening and they go through the entire conference call and they didn't say a word about the divestitures. And I'm like, well, that's strange. I called up Tom Barnes after that. I said, were you listening? He goes, no, it was two o'clock in the morning. I'm not listening. I said, well, I was. And they didn't say anything. And he goes, well, that's interesting. He says, let me call Gavin. So he calls Gavin and Gavin is like, oh, we're so glad you guys called. You know, that deal fell through. Are you guys still interested? And we're like, 
yes, but our price just went down, right? <laughs> because we know that you're, you know what. And what's your price just like, so we get at least an idea of like how much, because you're saying you never even had the money to acquire it, but can you give us some rough terms about how much like you'd have to pay for something like that? I will. I have to be very careful because I still am bound to not be able to tell exactly the price that we paid it. That's fine. Are we talking like a million, 10 million, a hundred million? Well, for all three properties was $101 million. Okay. That gives you an idea. And it took us a while. And that's a really interesting point because we couldn't figure out. And whenever you do a deal, you have to get to the point of understanding what somebody's trying to accomplish. Because otherwise, you're just going back and forth on prices and stuff like that. And we felt like we were in that role. And so we finally got to Gavin and we said, Gavin, you got to help us out because you're going down. Our price is going down. We're arguing. We're walking away. You're walking away. And it's, what is it that you have to do here? And he said, we have to be able to tell the analysts that we sold these three properties for north of $100 million. And we were like, okay, so 101 it is, <laughs> right. right? That accomplishes your goal and accomplishes our goal. In that 101, how do you break up the valuation of each one? And NPS was actually the most valuable property of all of them. Then you have to break out what it is. Once you know that what they're trying to do, then you can come to a deal that satisfies them and satisfies us. That's we finally got to. We signed the deals. Now, this is all happening in the second and third week in December. We signed the deal on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2013. And then we closed the deal on March 21st, 2013, where we then acquired both Act and Sales Logics, and then Excel KKR acquired NPS. Now, let me just tell you what that means. So we, here's all of a sudden a 15 person, $4 million company. Right. You're making $4 million a year in revenue right now, right? right. Okay. Next thing you know, we're making $70 million of revenue. We have 350 Swifties in four locations around the world overnight exploded Bob's head. Boom. You know, it's like crazy. And so did they get all the money from you, from all the money that you saved up at your old company? No, no. So what we did... I was joking. I didn't, I didn't think yeah, you had that much money. Yeah. <laughs> How we funded that was Excel KKR invested in our business as well. So they helped us out. Another institutional named Jump Capital, which is a kind of a venture private equity firm out of Chicago. They were already had one investment in SwiftPage, so they came in as well. And then Silicon Valley Bank. Those were the three big additional investors that came in that kind of gave us the capital, I should say, to make the deal happen. It was a crazy thing. I want to tell your listeners a super, super funny story on March 31st, 2013. One of the locations that we acquired was down in Scottsdale, Arizona. It was one of the largest ones in North America. So Bob and I went down there for the actual closing day. Bob and I were sitting in a conference room in Arizona, and this is the closing call. I don't know if, if anybody's ever done any deals. You always have what's called the closing call. And what's happening is you have hundreds of people on this call because you have lawyers. Now, this was a very complicated deal because it was a three-way transaction. Different countries. Across you know different countries, different companies, that kind of stuff. You can imagine the amount of lawyers that were on this call. Oh my God, it was probably the most expensive call in the history of mankind. So you have all these lawyers on, you have all these business guys on, you know, et cetera, Bob and I are on. And it's like the mission control checklist, like for a launch. You know, everybody's like, so-and-so, are you good? And they're, we're good to go. And they just keep going around the horn. And then finally they get to Bob and I are like, Bob and John, you good to go? And we're like, yes, we're good to go. <laughs> Crossing your fingers. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden they said, okay, that's it. We're done. Congratulations. You guys now own the companies. Boom, right? Done. 
we've all been on conference calls. Everybody's been on a conference call. When you exit a conference call, you get that little boop sign, right? Yeah, boop, that tone. Well, we're sitting there and the amount of boops that came out of this phone were absolutely crazy. It was like for five minutes, it was like boop, 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 boop. That's how many people were on the phone. And Bob and I are looking at each other and like boops are happening. And then all of a sudden the boops stopped. And we looked at each other and we we're like, what the shit did we just do? We're like, we just bought this company. And, ah, you know, we're hugging each other, and crying and everything like that. Bob was so excited that he ran out. He goes, I got to go to the bathroom. He ran in the ladies room. He ran in the ladies room. He didn't even know, you know, what is it? Next thing you know, I hear all this screaming. And then he runs out of the ladies room and I'm like, oh, dear God, we've owned this company for less than a minute. And I'm going to have like 15 HR violations against the founder or whatever, because he runs in the ladies room. But anyway, it was really funny. It was quite the story. Yeah. No, I mean, I could imagine. So were y'all just like, you put it on mute and you were just waiting to see how many people were on there? Or you're just like, just still excited and you're just kind of in awe of how many people are getting <laughs> off the phone? We were paralyzed. We didn't know what to do. We were just like, ah, it was just like from the amount of deals I'd done, it was probably one of the most complicated deals I did. One of the largest ones I did, but just being able to do that with Bob and help him through all this stuff, it was just a really cool thing to do. So yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Overnight, like you're saying, you explode. I mean, there's just so many things going through my head at that point. You yeah. know, I guess you're excited, but then you're also thinking like, damn, it's going to be a lot of work, right? But at least you had been in C-level companies, so maybe it didn't seem as big to you. But for your partner, it seems like it probably would be pretty big too. Yeah, it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming for him. And I kind of just stepped in and, like I said, and took over the company. And Bob was still involved in the company, but it was really myself kind of running it and all the challenges, right? So the very first thing is we had two companies. We really only wanted one. <laughs> that was the first thing. SalesLogix was an enterprise CRM system, not a small business system. So what did that mean? That meant that it was fighting with Salesforce every single day. It was fighting with Sugar. It was fighting with Microsoft CRM. It was a totally different dynamic that we really didn't want to be in, right? So very, very quickly, literally with the second day we owned it, I said, we're going to run SalesLogic as a separate company and we're going to integrate Act and SwiftPage together because that's really the SMB type of thing. I'll go down this SalesLogic uh, path for just a second here. It was a good asset. I do have to tell everybody that when we acquired Act and SalesLogic, they were both distressed assets. They had, Sage had owned them for a, almost a decade. They really didn't know what to do with them. So they had kind of let them die on the vine. They were losing market share. The, the channel was getting restless. You know? So there was a bunch of stuff that was going on that we had to clean up. But anyway, SalesLogic was a pretty good asset. Just needed some, what I call love and care, right? I mean, just needed some of that. Brought in a, a really sharp guy to kind of run that business for me. And we cleaned that up. And in September of 2014, a little over about 15 months after we owned it, we divested that off to Infor. And that was just a fantastic deal for us because we got one and a half times what we paid for both companies on the divestiture. That was just fantastic for our shareholders. And it was a good deal for Infor. It was one of those win-win deals is fantastic. That was the sales logic saga. It was kind of interesting. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to it like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and you're just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check it once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think it's kind of like, say, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs>
Well, what do you do with that money when you do that? Because this is important. It's like if you buy a used car on a good deal and you end up making it that much nicer and then being able to sell it for, you're saying for both these companies, those times one and 1.5 is like, that's amazing right there. That seems like another jump because it almost seems like no matter what you did with SwiftPage, that at least you made your money back, right? From what you had done before. Yeah, exactly. What we needed to do is go all the way back to what our strategy was, right? Our strategy was we wanted to own conversion and retention for the SMB. Now we had the anchor of it, which was ACT. So we used the money that we got from the divestiture and we put it right back into the company. We had a lot of work to do with the ACT brand. We got some investor. We did give some investors some money back. We paid down some debt. But the bulk of that money is we put it right back into going after our strategy here. We took the strategy down one layer below that. And we said, okay, this just kind of analyzed what we have. We have this great product called ACT. They had about... I don't know, 50, some 55, 60,000 customers, about 200,000 users worldwide. And so we said, but it, the brand, very recognizable brand, everybody knows ACT. Anybody over 40 has probably used it. Anybody under 40 can't spell it, but that's a different story. So it had a very recognizable brand, a very, very loyal customer base. So all those were positive. It was instantaneously put us into a global footprint. Now let's talk about the challenges. The technology this is in 2013, it was a closed desktop system. And so that was the problem. The entire business model was built around license and maintenance. The channel was all geared towards license and maintenance and selling license and maintenance, et cetera. It was losing market share. The brand, although it was very, very recognizable, was tired. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, act, is that still around? We'd have $100 million in the bank. There was all these challenges and we said, okay, we got to hunker down. We took the strategy, we broke it down into three phases or what I like to call eras. We said, we're going to go through three very distinct eras in this company. The first one is what we call the transformation era. We had to transform the technology. We had to take closed desktop system and move it to an open cloud-enabled platform. We had to take the business model from license and maintenance to subscription. We had to completely revamp the entire back office set of applications because everything was geared towards license maintenance. We worked the channel and re-educate the channel. We had to have a whole new sales force and all sales processes and everything. So, And oh, by the way, we had to do this on a global worldwide basis. An enormous amount of work in this transformation era and an enormous amount of investment. So that's why you need the money from the divestiture to put that in. And oh, by the way, why you're doing all of that, you still have to sell the licenses and maintenance to keep the business afloat. It's like flying an airplane at Mach 1 and then trying to work on the engine while you're flying. It was a crazy, crazy era. And that started in March of 2013, and it really lasted until May of 2015, about two years, a little over two years. Then what we did in May of 2015, we launched an entire new portfolio of products into the North American market that was all cloud-enabled, cloud-based, it was subscription-based. So that enabled us to move into the next phase or era, which we call the conversion era. That is, how do you take all these loyal customers that you have and convert them over to the cloud and convert them over to subscription without, quite frankly, pissing them off and having them run off you know, to use something else? We launched into that, and I can go into some more details onto that. We started that in May of 2015 in North America, and we staggered it one year and we did May of 2016 in international. Think of the years of 15, 16, and 17 
as conversion era years, that type of thing. And I'll come back and talk a little bit more detail, but I want to get into the next era. The third era is then what we're calling the growth era. The growth era has got to get back to the initial strategy of saying, we got to own conversion and retention. So the first two eras were just to fix the one piece that we had at the center of the universe. Then the growth era is to get back to the existing strategy and say, okay, how do we continue to do that? Three big legs of the stool on the growth era is continued organic growth, ARPU growth, continue more geographic expansion, even though we all worldwide, there's a couple of areas of the world that we want to get bigger in. And then the third leg of it is acquisitions and how do we acquire the rest of conversion and retention to be that big 800 pound gorilla. So those are the three eras. When I started looking at the growth era, and that was probably around the beginning of 2017, I really sat down with Bob and I said, our existing investor base is not the right base that's going to take us into the growth era. The institutional guys have been around for a while. The non-institutional guys, and 62% of the company, by the way, was still owned by the founder, his friends and family, management team, et cetera. And only 38% was owned by institutional. I said, everybody's got fatigue. Some of these folks have been in since 2001. Some of my investments have been in here since 2003, 2004. I said, so we need to get a new investment. We need some fresh capital in here. We kind of worked out. I said, what's it going to take for you to be happy if we come in and get somebody to recap and take the existing base out and get a new investor in here? And so that took us some time for him to really kind of work through that and came back and he said, if you can get X price, I'll be happy. And I said, I can get that price. Actually, we went out on a process to find a new investor. That took us whew, all of 17 and a quarter into 18 to find the right partner. Because it wasn't we're out looking for anybody that would give us money. It had to be the right partner. It had to be the partner that bought into our strategy, bought into where we were going, bought into the growth era, and really wanted to be that part of the fund that we wound up finding a firm by the name of SFW Capital based out of New York who came in and we closed. We actually recapped the entire company in May of 2018. All the existing investors got a super, super nice return on their investment. And actually, Bob rolled a little bit over. I rolled over some investment and the SFW has asked me to stay on to really execute the growth strategy. In fact, they said the only way that they would invest in a company is that if we kept the management team together, because this is the team that was going to really take it. We're all in this to take this thing to the next level. It's been a crazy, crazy wild ride. Yeah. No, I mean, it sounds like it. And I appreciate you taking us on this journey. Even just thinking about from 2012 up to now, just having to do all those little things like you're saying, where you have those loyal customers. Because actually, I mean, I don't think I even told you, it was like right when I started getting into commercial real estate, the older guy that I used had worked with had X software and it was the desktop thing that you have to log on. And he's like, put the contacts in there. I'm like, I'm not putting my contact. I'd rather use Excel. Because <laughs> I was like, dude, what is this? It does sound like a balancing act to try to understand where the future is going because ACT at one point wasn't at the forefront of technology to be able to make the CRM, right? No, yeah. But then over time, if you're not kind of looking forward and understand what else you need to do to make this work in the long term, then it's not going to work out. Like you're saying, having that boundary to try to not piss off your old customers, have them go somewhere and then try to make this more of a cloud software, right? right. Versus just having a desktop thing. I can only imagine how you have to do that, like the talks and strategies to being able to do that. It's crazy. We're super, super excited because we launched what we're calling the next generation of ACT. 
people always ask me, what is conversion and retention? What is conversion and retention? Yeah, there you go. That's the question <laughs> that everybody asks. It's broader than CRM, right? A CRM is a piece of it. Literally, conversion retention has three big pieces. CRM, customer relationship management, marketing automation, and service management. And those three big pillars make up conversion retention. And there's some smaller pieces on there. There's some invoicing, maybe payment systems, but those are the three big pieces. What we just launched is the next generation of ACT. We call it the Grow Suite, which is CRM and marketing automation all in one integrated platform, which is fantastic. And it's all running in the cloud. When people see it, they're just like, holy crap, I can't believe ACT has come this far. And oh, by the way, it's kind of almost leapfrogged in the industry a little bit because there's lots of marketing automation players out there and there's lots of CRM players out there. Some of the marketing automation players have, they say, oh, we've got CRM, but they got this little tiny thing. They don't really have full-blown CRM. And some of the CRM players will say like, oh yeah, we got marketing automation. Well, you just have email marketing. <laughs> it's really basically what you have. But now we've got all of it together and it's a one integrated platform. What that means, what I tell everybody, everything you do in CRM, is available in marketing automation. Everything you do in marketing automation is available in CRM. Right now, what people have to do is say like, oh, if I'm using HubSpot, I got to export some crap out of my CRM system, import it into HubSpot, do whatever I need to do in HubSpot. Then all the results and everything, I got to export it out of HubSpot and then import it back into my CRM. And that's a pain in the ass, quite frankly. And for a small business, they don't have time to do that or that they have the resources to do that. Now what you've got is you don't have to do that. Everything you do, you know, you do something in marketing automation and you pop up something, you know, an opportunity inside of CRM and it's already there. It's just this time savings, what we like to call CRM workflow is all built in and people are just getting super, super excited about it. We're pretty jazzed about it. No, it sounds like it. And obviously you're a good sales guy too. I can tell it. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, we appreciate you sharing your story and we look forward to the future success right here of uh, yeah. Act and Swift page. I guess you're in that third phase, so we'll be looking for the growth the next few years, right? I'd like to leave one nugget for your listeners if I could. Yeah, go ahead. That is, it, it goes, people will say, how do I do all everything? Three words. And if you live by these three words, you're going to be successful. Courage, passion, and tenacity. That's what you have to. You have to have the courage to do stuff that just feels uncomfortable, right? You just need to do it. Think back of the story that we just told, all the spots that we needed to just say, you know what, we're scared, but who cares? We're going to have the courage to overcome it and move forward. Tenacity is the other one. Tenacity, in this story, all the places that we hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall, we caught it all just went and said, you know what, it ain't going to work, let's walk away. You got to have the tenacity to keep on going. And then passion, if you are not passionate about it, don't do it. Right? If you can't have passion and you don't see the passion in it, is probably not the right thing to do. Courage, passion, tenacity, you follow those three things, you're going to be successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everything you had done up to that point, you didn't know what you're doing necessarily. It's kind of a leap of faith, but you're figuring it out as you go. I mean, I could even apply those three things to what you're saying about the podcast that had started a little over a year ago. You know, it's like I had the courage to do it. I'm like, oh, well, there's other people in there doing it, but I don't think they're doing as good of a job. So I'm going to try it even though I don't have any background in it. And then I guess the tenacity, the ability to just keep doing it. And then finally the passion, because I was becoming less passionate about what I was doing. And I was like, this is much more exciting for me to talk to smart people like yourself and then get those interviews out to people to help them grow their business. Yeah, I think those three things are definitely great. If anyone wanted to contact you and say, thanks for the interview, I don't think you want to give us your phone number so they're not blowing you up <laughs> in the middle of the night because yeah. we got a worldwide audience. But if they wanted to like email you or what's the best way for them to say thank you for doing the interview? Twitter is always a good way. My handle is at 
H-J-O-E-C-H, H-J-O-S-H, or if you want to email me, it's J-O-E-C-H-S-L-E, J-O-S-H-L at swiftpage.com. And I'd love to interact with some folks. And if I can help out in any way, let me know. Thank you again, John, for coming on. I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun, Austin. Thank you so much. Hey there, mother effer. You looking for more tech-based interviews? If so, here's five more recommendations for you to check out. Try episode 198 with Jim Warner, or episode 79 with Brad Martineau. Another one, episode 195 with Howard Gottlieb. Number four is episode 71 with Jordan Gal of Carthook. And last but not least, episode 180 with Diana Goodwin of Aquamobile. Oh, and if you feel like helping us keep this podcast going, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Hope you enjoy those tech-based interviews. And to become a Patreon member, just check your episode notes below.